Do you miss going to school? Yeah. Yeah, yeah but. What do you miss about it? Oh, my football team. The football team? Yeah. <laughs> do you miss seeing your friends? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Hidden Voices. I'm your host, Raisa Habersham. Join me on my journey to learn more about the experiences of Georgia residents with developmental disabilities, guided along the way by my co-host and mentor, Dorona King. Talking with Emily C. Berry on the last episode opened my eyes to how often people with developmental disabilities are doubted or judged when it comes to making decisions about love and relationships. As someone without a developmental disability, my choice to get married or my ability to raise a child has never been up for debate. People with developmental disabilities should be able to make their own life decisions without those decisions being called heroic. They deserve agency and the freedom to choose their friends, a job, or a life partner. But that's not always the case, especially when choice is taken off the table early on. When I spoke with Emily, she mentioned that she had been segregated in school from the wider student population at a young age. Hearing her talk about that experience reminded me of just how much students with developmental disabilities were separated from the other students when I was in school. It's so easy to assume this is for the student's best interest, to group a student with others who are then taught by educators specializing in quote-unquote special needs and talents. But that's not how it felt. I know this now because I was in a program that was actually built to provide those benefits to its students. It was called Talented and Gifted, or TAG, and I was placed in it in kindergarten. It was a weekly program designed for students with what the school deemed as intellectual gifts. Being in TAG afforded me quite a bit of opportunity. I met children at other schools who shared my interests, learned from peers who had different talents, and even met my future husband there. Atlanta is small. At the time, I was the only child in my class who was in the program, so it felt isolating in its own way. But at no point was I permanently removed or hidden from my larger population of peers. This was not the case for my peers with developmental disabilities. When I was in school, I didn't have a lot of exposure to uh, students with developmental disabilities. The first time was when I was um, walking down the hallway with my class and I saw another set of students and there were maybe 10 of them. And, you know, there were murmurs, there were whispers, and there was one student who said, yeah, they're special needs class. And our teacher tried to kind of hurry us down the hallway very quickly. And she told us not to stare, which I was like, okay, so I guess we won't do that. So if you thought back to those earliest memories of elementary school, how your teacher responded, the kind of hush-hush look away, what do you think that did in your formation, uh, in, your, in your mind as a small child, of uh, thinking about people with disabilities? I don't know if it was meant to encourage something or discourage something, 
I don't know if she was trying to say, okay, let's move out of their way or you all shouldn't be seen with them. They shouldn't be seen with you because that was something that you just did not talk about. You knew you should not speak negatively, but her hurrying us along and the the why behind it, I will never know. So if you were a six-year-old and you were not permitted to connect with the wider student population, what do you think that would start to do about your forming thoughts about yourself? I would feel like nobody wanted me. Yeah. I would feel very alone. And so then, Raisa, imagine that six-year-old experience becomes your 13-year-old experience, becomes your 22-year-old experience, becomes your 66-year-old experience. Children who have disabilities are already segregated and cut off from the general student population. Um, They're less likely than children who aren't labeled to receive an appropriate education. That sets up all kinds of ideas about who gets to be included on the playground to who's more likely to get harmed in a classroom where no one else's eyeballs are being laid in the classroom. So the pandemic, while it has dramatically impacted the lives of all students, and I would say teachers and parents as well, I would be quick to say that a child with a disability, at least in the state of Georgia, is more significantly impacted during this time. The way the educational system fails them, I would think that it affects them in a long-term way. Yeah, there are some pretty huge gaps in education, particularly in in the state of Georgia, for children with disabilities. And again, I I guess I use this word a lot. It goes back to what assumptions people have around children who have disabilities, what they can or shouldn't. Um, The assumptions are that, well, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to college, you're not going to get a job. And that plays out even in, in it systemically. If that isn't harmful enough, the other issue is that children are frequently who aren't educated, even without a disability, are moving from often really poor schools and education systems directly into, the, into jail and into the prison pipeline. And that's a travesty. Oh, my God. Like, I just... It makes me angry just because, you know, from a young age, I've always taught how important education is and that without it, you won't get far. And so to know that people don't have the full right of an education, I mean, you can't even graduate. It's insulting. It is quite literally inhumane. Autumn Vaskins is the mother of 18-year-old Mays High School student Aya. Aya has many gifts. Despite being somewhat shy, she loves to dance, draw, and, like any average teenager, loves to watch TV. Aya lives in Southwest Atlanta, a community that, like many, has been rocked by the pandemic. Despite being home since March 2020, Aya is enjoying digital learning and excelling in her classes. But like many students, she misses her classmates. Well, Aya, I wanted to ask you, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. I wanted to know how has school changed for you? Upon uh, uh, what's different about school now? 
Uh, that were in the pandemic. You used to go to school on a... Do you remember what you wrote on to go to school? Mm-hmm. What? Um, a bond of it. A bus? And you went to school with and saw all your friends, right? Mm-hmm. And now how do you do school? Are you sitting looking at a... I can't. A computer? Yeah. Yeah? Do you like mm-hmm. seeing your friends on the computer? I do. Yeah. I do. And so what does, I guess, a typical day look like for you during the school day? Well, um, school starts at 9. They have to be logged on to Zoom by 9 and um, basically rolls until about 12, 12.30. And per class, actually, there are probably about six students, um, her teacher and a para, and they're all on Zoom. And um, they'll first go over current events, and it's like a CNN news brief about something current going on. And then the rest of the day, it's like pretty repetitive, like, and that's how these kids learn. And so they're going over just daily living skills or um, math or science. I think I, yesterday I heard her teacher talking about Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and so what was school like, you know, pre-pandemic? You know, can you tell me, I guess, you know, what a typical day was then? Before she was, yeah, she was, um... I guess in a classroom probably of 12, 13 kids and um, two paras and a teacher. And she spent most of the day in the classroom. I think they ate lunch in their classroom as well. Aya, how does it make you feel to know that your classes are segregated away from the other students? Hmm. I don't know why. Do you feel a way about that? Yeah. You were it makes you feel terrible? Mm-hmm. Aya's somber tone said it all for me. She doesn't like being separated from her classmates who are allowed the freedom to hang out and develop relationships. Aya was already isolated, and the pandemic has only made that isolation worse. It made me wonder what her life would be like after she graduates, and if she'd finally get the opportunity to interact more with other people. So I want to talk to you a little bit about graduation plans or post-graduation plans. Have you discussed that? Um, it's not really a discussion that we've had about what she would do. It's more of a discussion that, you know, this is what people do, you know. Um, as far as thinking about the opportunities that are there for her, there aren't a lot. Unfortunately, um, you know, I'm still navigating this as well. And Unless, you know, she's the person that could possibly work independently, you know, on her own and navigate transportation and all of that to get to and from a place that's not apparent yet, then the other option is basically a day program. And that's not that enticing, but it's great if if it means socialization and she'll have a purpose but I really, to be honest, I, I mean, I have no clue what the future will bring. Um, that's something that keeps me awake. And thankfully, Aya is just um, very innocent in, in, you know, the future. It's not something she worries about. How has the school been helpful in Aya transitioning to that next step for her? I know you mentioned day program, but have there been other options presented? 
Actually, our school has a program for 11th and 12th graders where, um, depending on their aptitude, they take them weekly to like the Marriott and they'll do jobs like work in um, housekeeping or do laundry, things like that for the Marriott. And based on how well they do, a lot of times their pathways open for them when they graduate. When I was in high school, I had a say in the trajectory of my future whereas the school districts seem to cherry-pick the few choices Aya is given. For instance, Aya has an IEP, an Individualized Education Program. That's a written document that outlines the development plan for a student who is in special education. From what I've read, the IEP is created through a team effort that includes school staff and the child's parent and is reviewed at least once a year. Autumn has used the plan to help track Aya's development but lately, she started questioning some things. She is on an IEP. Um, I don't know. I can't say it's superficial. I guess it does provide a basis. But a lot of the goals, like I've learned to think more critically about it. I always go to the meetings and I see what the teachers offer up on the IEP because, you know, I have no clue. You know, I'm looking at them as professionals. But then I got to a point where I'm just like, wait, on her IEP, there's like, for two years in a row, they've had working on the letter B, you know, so that she pronounces it correctly and not like an M. But it took a while for me to, like, see that, to, like, become woke, you know, um, and just say that doesn't matter. I wanted to ask, I know you said that you all will be going over an IEP plan for next year. How long do you anticipate Aya will be in school? Well, um, I think she's going to be in school until 21, 22, for as long as she can be in school. That's what I was told is the best thing. I was advised that there aren't a lot of programs for the kids once they graduate. And so it's best to keep them in school for as long as possible unless they have immediate plans, you know. How do you feel about that? How do you feel being told that? Here are the options for your child beyond high school. Well, it is what it is. Like what's out there is, you know, and, and that's really unfortunate. They're not really telling me that I can't do anything because she's just not worth, you know, they're, they're not giving me that message. They're saying, unfortunately, this is the world we live in. I mean, I know my child, unless, you know, they can get a job doing something. These are the options that are available for them. It's really disappointing and it's heartbreaking. Do you feel like you have the support system in place so that Aya is also adequately getting an education in this pandemic? Well, um, I mean, do women ever have like the appropriate support systems in place? We are the support system. Um, yeah, I have a fiance and, uh, but it's me. You know, every day, like we both work full time and Aya is doing school half a day. But, you know, I'm the one that logs her on and I'm the one that's doing the homework with her. And I'm trying to juggle that with my job as well. Um, like, I'm thankful that we're all together, like we're working. We all have a purpose. Aya's in school right now. The beginning of the pandemic, like in the spring, it was totally opposite. We were all working, but Aya wasn't in school, you know. Terrible. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that was like? You know, because when the pandemic first hit, I think about, you know, my siblings and what they immediately had to do to transition to virtual learning. What was available to Aya, if anything? What was her 
learning experience like when the pandemic first hit and APS had to completely shut down? Well, um, I remember March 12th was the day because we got told to go home and then Aya got sent home with a packet of like photocopied sheets, tracing and um, numbers, whatever that was supposed to last for like three weeks. But at that point, we hadn't heard from anyone. And and I understand no one really understood what was happening or how long it would happen for. And but then March passed in April and about April, you know, I started hearing about workmates of mine who lived in other parts of Atlanta. Their kids were in APS as well, but they were going to school via Google Classroom and Zoom. And I'm just like, whoa, I haven't even heard from the teachers at IA school. Haven't heard from anyone, you know? And then like over a month went by and then it turned to just like indignation, you know? And I knew that basically if I call the lead teacher, She's just going to tell her teacher to call me. And that's what she did. And he called and, you know, he said, I apologize, but, you know, we we don't know what to do. We're not set up for a Google Classroom. You know, they just told us to go home and um, gave us a laptop. And so we didn't know what to do. But nobody told me that, you know, nobody even checked just to see how's Aya doing, you know, Um it sounds to me like there was just levels of forgottenness, if that makes sense. And it seems like you had to do a lot of the heavy lifting. In those moments, how did that make you feel? Oh, I was very angry and I was very hurt. I cried a lot for Aya, for all of the kids, you know, because it did feel like they were forgotten. They were the kids that that they could count as a loss, you know, and that wouldn't speak up. And I think it was basically the region we live in. I am all too familiar with this region, Southwest Atlanta. It's where I grew up and the place I still call home. I remember what it felt like living in such a neglected area. I can only imagine that the pandemic has heightened Aya and Autumn's issues. What is it like to be the parent of a child with a developmental disability, particularly during a pandemic? It's, I think it's a bit easier (laughs) and a bit more difficult. Um, I know what she's missing and there had been months where she had not really seen or been around anyone outside of our house. And I felt really bad about that, you know? That was really difficult. That was the most difficult part, I think, just not being able to talk to anyone or see anyone. You know, if all things were equal and if you could dream up just a future for Aya, what would it be? I would think that um, maybe her having some sort of yoga (laughs) class, you know, where she could instruct asanas I think that that would be really cool. Um, Dance studio, anything that, you know, just gets moving and fit because that's what she's fell into on her own, not really with me pushing her to do it. Like, and those are the things that make great careers, right? Fulfilling careers, the things that you love to do. Advocacy is key to ensuring a student like Aya excels and a parent like Autumn has the tools she needs to adequately support her child. Thankfully, there are organizations that parents raising students with developmental disabilities can turn to. One of those organizations is Lipson Advocacy, 
led by attorney and self-proclaimed inclusionista Leslie Lipson. Leslie has dedicated her career to advocacy work for people with developmental disabilities. For nearly 20 years, Lipson worked for the Georgia Advocacy Office, where she investigated special education segregation in Georgia. Now, at her organization, Lipson consults with not just parents, but also different organizations, agencies, and companies who want to support and advocate for families of children with developmental disabilities. So what would that advocacy, I guess, look like? The lowest level intervention. So if you're standing beside a family who wants you to help them advocacy, and you can help by helping them ghostwrite an email, they just don't quite have the language, they don't know who to send the email to or what to ask for, that's it. Nobody has to know you're involved. You can just kind of stand in the background and help somebody. If you're going to a school meeting, help prepare families to advocate for their kid and not take over, not try to be the savior of a situation, not try to insert yourself. And then, you know, there are places for adversarial processes around civil rights complaints and litigation. And I'm also really connected into that work also. So I think the first kind of rule is, you know, do not muck in other people's lives and um, to stand beside people because advocating for kids with disabilities in the system is just immensely challenging. That was going to be my next question. You know, how does advocacy play out for students with developmental disabilities in the school system? You know, sometimes it can play out really well. You know, for some parents, I think that have um, really great communication skills, they can take off for every single meeting for their kids. I think for some people, advocacy can play out really beautifully. And to be clear, there are some advocacy situations that are easier. So I think it depends a lot upon how the school views the parent and a lot about how the school and administration views the kid's disability. And I think also generally like how people view the experience of disability. Some people deeply believe that people with disabilities belong apart in a way doing special things with special people in special places in special ways. That is their deeply held belief. When you come up against that in an administration, that can be some really hard advocacy work. And we lose. I've lost. You mentioned you work with Georgia Advocacy, the Georgia Advocacy Office. And I know that you were part of the legal team that was involved in the Georgia lawsuit. Can you talk to me a little bit about that case? Absolutely. So the state of Georgia is unusual and that we have a statewide segregated school system funded by the Georgia legislature. So not funded locally. About 3,000 students with disabilities are kept in a separate and segregated statewide school system. And the state of Georgia is, um, how do I say it? It's deeply loyal to this system. Leslie has spent the past few years of her career fighting the segregation and putting affected families in contact with the Department of Justice, who filed a lawsuit against Georgia's segregated school system. Known as GNETS, or the Georgia Network for Educational and Therapeutic Supports, the system has been the subject of the court case U.S. versus the state of Georgia. The state-funded system, formerly called Georgia Psychoeducational System, consists of about two dozen regions in Georgia that only includes kids with behavioral disabilities. In 2015, the Justice Department issued a letter to Georgia telling them the segregated system violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. Despite that, the system remains in place. So if I'm understanding you correctly, 
the Georgia State Legislature is funding a completely separate educational system for those with developmental disabilities. So it used to be that you could only go there if you were diagnosed with something called an emotional behavior disorder, which is many kids with developmental disabilities have been diagnosed with an emotional behavior disorder by school systems. And then I think an effort to clean up, you know, they've been trying to clean up since 2015 and the investigation started. They said, hey, any kid with a disability can go to these programs, but they need to have um, a need for these services. Our argument, the people involved in the, the advocacy, says the services shouldn't only be available in these segregated systems. These services should be available in neighborhood schools where kids go to school, where kids live. The only way you end up in a GNATS program is that you have a disability and people have decided that your behavior is exceedingly difficult. Oh, that's insulting. Well, the criteria doesn't say your behavior is exceedingly difficult. The criteria has like other things with it, but it's basically means that. In Georgia, teachers and paraprofessional administrators are taught if kids have disabilities and they have difficult behaviors relating to those disabilities in the minds of the teachers or administrators, they belong in a GNETS and there's funding for it and you don't have to pay for it. It's a very incentivized system. Leslie, for people listening, why is GNETS problematic? You know, because it's a system that is funded and segregated. What's the problem with that? That's a very good question. Because if you think that people with disabilities belong separate and apart from other people, then you're probably really puzzled about why the system's a problem. And so I'm going to take it on a couple levels. Let's first go with why is it bad for students? So first, there is no research that exists in the world that kids who are struggling with appropriate behavior learn good behavior from other adults in segregated settings. The research is very clear that kids learn from other kids. They learn from their peers. The segregation holds back and constrains the idea that kids with disabilities are gonna make good social progress. Additionally, we have great data that the academic instruction that happens in local neighborhood schools for kids with disabilities and kids without disabilities does not happen in GNETS. It's very much about compliance, very much about behavior, and not about curriculum and transition and having a good full life and what are the jobs or future study that's available for you. So it's really a problem for kids. For families, many kids spend an hour, an hour, 20 minutes on the bus each way to these GNETS programs. They're not located near their houses. Families have very little opportunity to be engaged in any way in the school. They don't have PTAs. Also, these schools don't have extracurricular activities, which is another way that many kids learn pro-social behavior. For teachers, it's a huge problem and that you could imagine if you had 10 kids without disabilities or 10 kids with maybe one had a disability that didn't have very difficult behavior and one kid who was really struggling, you could handle that. A classroom of 10 kids, all who have very difficult behavior, could be very challenging to all of us because segregation makes it really overwhelming. Also for teachers who want to go to the teacher lounge and ask another teacher, what should I do about this? The most experienced teachers in supporting kids with behavior-related difficulties are all at these GNETs. It's like a brain drain. They're not in the neighborhood schools. And so these neighborhood schools have not developed supports and services. They've concentrated them all within these segregated places. So we could continue that on and tell you the problem that creates for society, 
the problem that creates for our community. And there's really no limit to it. So that, that really is the problem with GNETs. We want to spread out the wealth. GNET sounds very militarized almost when you mentioned how it's about compliance. You know, is that the underlying philosophy behind them? And how are they enforcing this compliance? So many kids have what's called these behavioral plans in GNETs. Almost every kid I've ever known in GNETs has a behavioral plan. And the behavior plans look like this. You know, I will not interrupt my teacher. You know, I will stay in my seat until I'm called to move. Very explicit, not always age-appropriate plans that actually would not even be able to be implemented by kids without disabilities in the local school system. So these behavioral expectations, though, are written in such a way it's very difficult for kids to reach those levels. And if kids can't kind of enact their behavioral plan, that's the excuse used to not move them back to their local school. You know, if you can't sit in your seat for an hour without moving, then you can't go back to your local school. Once you're caught in that system, it's super circular. You really can't get out. It's very sticky. Threatening to keep a student with developmental disabilities from returning to school is just one form of punishment used by GNETs. Physical and chemical restraints are also used. While traditional schools notify parents of behavioral problems, Leslie tells us GNETs practices something else entirely. GNETs will say when they come to these meetings, listen, if you send your kid to a GNETs, we won't call you. We understand that kids have behavioral disabilities and, um, and you know, we understand. We can support your student. We're special. We have all the special things. But I've represented kids and no kids and no families where kids have had um, juvenile court charges of battery placed upon them for something that happened with a teacher or a parapro or another student. There are a couple of juvenile court charges in Georgia, one called disruption of a public school. Anything can be disruption of a public school. It's a catch-all provision. And so we've seen many kids criminalized for the very behavior that GNETs say they're going to work hand-in-hand with the students and the parents to correct. Has there been any use of restraints in GNETs? And what's the philosophy behind that? Many, many years ago, there was a young man named Jonathan King who had a dress code violation in a GNETs called Alpine in North Georgia. And he spent many, many days in the seclusion room. By the way, this kid, cute, scrawny kid, 13 years old. Picture of him is still up on CNN.com. If you want to go Google Jonathan King, Georgia seclusion. He came home every night and told his parents, I got put in timeout today. I got put in timeout today. 13-year-old kid with ADHD. And I don't know what you would think if your kid came home, but I would think he was in the corner, dunce cap, in timeout. But they did not know he was being put in a locked seclusion room. On this day, he had a dress code violation. His pants were too shaggy. And the teachers gave him twine to put around his belt loops. And when he was in the seclusion room, unmonitored, he hung himself. Oh, my goodness. That's horrible. And um, that was a direct result of being in seclusion. And at that point in Georgia, you could restrain or seclude any child for any reason, at any time, by any person, and you did not have to tell their parents. And we worked really hard with so many families, including Jonathan King's parents, to prohibit the use of seclusion or restraint in Georgia. And right now, the use of seclusion is outlawed in Georgia because what we know 
is that restraints happen on the way to the seclusion room. The lawsuit against Georgia's segregated special education system is ongoing. And while Leslie has her work cut out for her, there's still a world of reform left to tackle beyond the lawsuit. You know, if you ask me my top actions, you know, my goal is to make the GNATs obsolete. For kids who are in crisis, professionals should be going to those particular schools and those particular kids and helping them in crisis. So definitely more supports in our local communities, Um, training and teaching, having these teachers that teach in GNATs that really do, many of them deeply understand students who are struggling in this way, have them in local schools and working with teachers like your husband who want to welcome students and don't necessarily have had the training or the specific expertise, but they want to learn. We need master teachers and mentor teachers in places. We also need flexibility around what our classrooms look like. Georgia funds teachers in a certain way that makes class sizes very, very large. We also have to um, support parents. And the mental health and developmental disabilities healthcare systems also have to be involved. You know, you um, mentioned offering parents support. And I spoke with a parent recently who noted that she's learning to advocate for her daughter who has a developmental disability. And to me, she sounded a bit frustrated with just a system altogether. You know, what do you say to a parent who feels alone in this process of having to advocate for their child? So, I mean, truthfully, I want to cry with them. Like, it is so lonely. And the system is very much stacked against parents. I would definitely tell her to seek out parents, maybe had a kids a couple years older than her kid in those systems. There are agencies that get federal funding to support parents through that process in Georgia, Parent to Parent, who's been a great partner with me and work for many years. I would say that parents really need to be able to take care of themselves in the long term because it's a long road to hoe. And they're really going to have to be deeply centered and in a good place to continue the advocacy. But what I would really like to say is it is a massively screwed up system where the civil rights of students with disabilities are dependent entirely upon the efforts of their parents. And the burden on parents is not the burden of parenting a child with disabilities. That's a blessing. But the burden that parents are the only advocacy arm for students, and they have to pull every single lever and trigger throughout the entire education system, it is, it is burdensome for parents, that advocacy process. And I really, I validate her feelings. That brings me to my final question. You know, what would your ideal education system look like for students with disabilities? Well, I think if we offered services based on what kids need versus based on the labels of the kids with disabilities. So for instance, you know, some kids need behavioral supports. And you might need behavioral supports if you have an attention issue. You might need them if you have a, develop, a certain type of developmental disability issue. And you might need them if you experienced incredible trauma when you were two and three years old. But maybe we could provide funding for those types of services and not for the eligibility label of the kid. I think that schools should have a lot more power over their curriculum and over their finances. I think what we're looking for in an education system is much more flexibility and a much greater understanding of who kids are. And I I think part of it is that teachers are really given a raw deal. They don't set teachers up for success. 
And then we run around going, oh my gosh, we have a teacher retention problem. And we're surprised, but it's not surprising. Does that speak to you? It does. It really does. The conversation about the education system was very emotional to me. I've mentioned before that my husband is a teacher. I hear the stories about how his students are struggling through the pandemic, and many don't have the support they need at home to grapple with the changes brought on by virtual learning. I hadn't realized how incredibly difficult that has to be for a parent like Autumn or a student like Aya. I needed to tell Dorona what I was processing. I felt from Autumn, you know, just this tone of almost defeat. And I hated hearing it because I cannot imagine being in a school system that just kind of shuffles you through. And I think about the disadvantages that almost intentionally set up for someone like Aya. You know, she's not really around her peer group. She has no experience with them. She has no interaction with them. She's very much segregated. And it never dawned on me that segregation also occurs based on intellectual and physical disability. And it was difficult to wrap my mind around the fact that Aya will have to be in high school until she's 22. And even then, she won't graduate. She won't be afforded the opportunities that I have been afforded. For me, I really saw how privileged I was. Mm. I felt very powerless. You know, I think about my profession and how, why I got into it. You know, I got into it to make a difference. And what I'm learning, what I'm realizing is it's difficult to be that difference when there's so many things just wrong with, you know, systematically. Uh, People with developmental disabilities are categorically ignored. And while I'm cognizant of, well, is there a wheelchair ramp here? Or, you know, is this ADA compliant? There are deeper levels to it. Let me tell you, you just, um, I think, made a, a huge leap that many people don't get the opportunity to press into, to stretch into. Just the notion of exclusion, it is not just about physical accessibility. You know, it's been emotional. Um, And I think it's been emotional because I get one viewpoint at home. I get it from the perspective of a teacher. And I think what's changing for me and what I've come to learn just as a reporter is we don't amplify people with developmental disabilities enough. How can you make space for this person in a way that makes them feel included? And Aya is drastically excluded. And a pandemic just further heightens that. So I think for me, what I'm learning is pass the mic. And I think that amplifying Aya's voice, it's a start. And I think repositioning it to say, how can I be, how can I help you? How can I be more inclusive to you is what will honestly make a true difference. What that looks like long term 
In my eyes, I am not sure yet. I think what gives me optimism is the lawsuit that the DOJ filed against Georgia, but it should not be an uphill battle. It's honest for us to say there's still great harm and stigma and segregation of people with disabilities in our nation, but we do need to acknowledge that the the large institutions, the wholesale warehousing of people uh, behind campuses and institutions does not exist anymore in, in the way that it did 70 years ago. There are some things that have moved forward, but the education system, particularly as one example of how we've gone from the large warehousing of people to the small warehousing of people. And, you know, it's kind of Shakespearean, you know, arose by any other name. However, in this case, an institution or segregation by any other name is still an institution. Um, it's just it's just smaller. You know, I, want, I think about Autumn. You know, I said that she felt defeated. You know, I asked her, you know, what would an ideal world look like for her daughter? It took a lot for me to reconcile the fact that she, for me, wasn't angrier at the educational system. It's been my experience of meeting families and parents with children with disabilities that most often parents are doing the very best they can with the tools that they have. The biggest struggle is that the tool chest is fairly empty. I think parents go through that gamut of shock, hurt, anger, frustration, and probably then the next level of numbness where where Autumn sits now, that she's done everything she possibly can to try to have her daughter included, that even now her expectations are low. She's been told so often and so frequently what her daughter can or won't do by the people who are the experts, I'm using air quotes here, um, that there's some subtle expectation now, even in the back of her mind as with many parents of, I better not dream too much because everybody has let me down thus far. Oh my, I never thought of it that way about I better not dream too much. Dorona, it seems like the school system is supposed to be this place for inclusivity, but they're falling short in that, you know, and then there's faith, you know, in some cases people lean into their faith and for others, faith can feel divisive, you know, have there been conversations about inclusivity and faith in the disability community? Rice, as you ask that question, I think both about um, Dr. Wolf Wolfensberger, who's the father of citizen advocacy, and also the, the large communities, which were by and large centered around faith and including people with disabilities. There's long been discussion around faith and disability. And part of that discussion is that of all the places institutional that we can think about where people are purported to be included and welcome, it may very well be that faith institutions have singularly set a tone of exclusion for people with disabilities 
the perceptions of who gets to sit on the pew and who does not. I am a Christian and even I know historically from a church perspective that people with disabilities have been perceived as those who needed to be healed. There are all kinds of perversions that have surfaced throughout faith communities that keep people with disabilities separate from the wider faith community. Join us for the next episode of Hidden Voices, where we'll talk about how people with developmental disabilities of faith navigate their religious communities. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities, Resurgence Impact Consulting, Citizen Advocacy of Atlanta and DeKalb, and L'Arche Atlanta, made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Raisa Habersham, and Dorona King is my co-host. Our executive producers are Irene Turner from The Storytelling Project and Michelle Corey with Frequency Media. Ina Garkusha is our producer. Matthew Filler is our editor. Hidden Voices is sponsored by the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities, whose vision is a state in which all persons are included in all facets of community life have choices while exercising control over their lives and are encouraged to achieve their full potential. GCDD advances social and policy changes that further an integrated community life for persons with developmental disabilities, their families, friends, neighbors, and all who support them. This podcast grew out of their larger GCDD storytelling project. You can find out more about them and their great advocacy for and with people with developmental disabilities at gcdd.org.